Please have your eyes on Scripture. Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, as, at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We who have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And when they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, take many, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Westside. We're glad that you're here as we continue in our sermon series entitled Break It Down. And uh, before we dive in, uh, this service for me is particularly special. So the 11 o'clock, you should feel better than the 9 o'clock, and you should rub it in all the time for them for sure. Um, I get asked a lot about, you know, where I went to training or schooling or if I had any education or anything like that. And I always refer to, I went to the school of hard knocks and got a doctorate there um, for sure. But um, my education came from traveling in the back of an Astro van, and as my dad Traveled the country and preached the gospel. And uh, today I am privileged that my dad is here today. So, won't you stand up, Dad? So I'm both excited and nervous at the same time, So, but enough of the mushy stuff, all right? We are in our series, Break It Down, and uh, we have been walking through sort of an acronym to lead us and guide us, and, and, and this is what we've been doing, God Our Sins Paying Everyone Life, and there's two reasons why we've sort of used this. Um, the first one is this, that the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. 
And so the more time we spend on the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ, we believe that if our mind begins to understand this, then our heart will grow to love this. But secondly, it is also sort of an equipping process as well. It is to equip you as a church body to not have to call me or Pastor Tyler or your community group leader when, quote, somebody asked me about Jesus or the gospel and I didn't know what to say. And so this has sort of been sort of a training series for us this summer to really help you be able to understand and explain the good news of the gospel. And when we say gospel, it means good news. And this has been our working definition um, for the entire sort of series. And I want you to read this out loud with me, okay? We're pounding one nail. You're in the sermon. Here we go. Ready? The gospel is the good news of God loving and saving lost mankind through the ministry in worship. Word and deed of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the message that we're trying to get across. And so we started with God. We realized that the gospel does not begin with us, that it is not primarily, it's for us, but it's not primarily about us. So we started with the concept of God and then our sins. And last week, Pastor Tyler did a phenomenal job of talking about eternal life. And how eternal life starts now and lasts forever. It's not just a place we're going, but a life we're living. It's not a ticket that gets punched and then we get to heaven, but rather we are working to bring heaven here on earth. And really through that sermon, you sort of should have been asking a question as you were hearing it taught, is how? How? I mean, how do we get this eternal life? How is it offered? What, what is this about And that arrives us at this week on paying. And we realize that in our state that we could not pay anything to make something right between man and God. And so this week it's it's heavy. The passage that was read to you sort of just sits and lingers in the air as it should. But maybe if I could set this up and just kind of be a little bit helpful. I think this idea of paying is actually everywhere in your life. And if I could refer to a deep, deep theologian, Uh, the year was 2011, and this song was released. It went number one in 15 different countries. The album sold $10.2 million, and the title of this deep theological album was entitled Doo-Wops and Hooligans. And the song is called Grenade by the great theologian Bruno Mars. Right? You remember hearing this song, right? For some of you lovebirds out there, this might even be your song. But listen to the deep theology of Bruno Mars as he sings these lyrics. Baby, I'd catch a grenade for you. Yeah, yeah. Throw my hand on a blade for you. Yeah, yeah. I'd jump in front of a train for you. Yeah. Yeah, you know I'd do anything for you. Yeah, yeah, okay, you got it, okay? Oh, whoa, oh, whoa. I would go through all of this pain, take a bullet straight through my brain. Yes, I would die for you, baby, but you won't do the same. Yeah, yeah, it's just rich theology there, right? I mean, we're in the deep end of systematic theology, So love, right? Love is always talked about. It's sung about movies, books, lyrics. 
But Bruno Mars has even stepped over, I would argue, into the theological realm. And he may not know this, but he's not just talking about any kind of love. Listen to the lyrics. He is talking about a sacrificial, substitutionary love. Bruno Mars is saying, I would do this for you, but you don't, you don't love me in return. I would sacrifice myself for you, but you wouldn't do the same. As that in 2011 was a number one hit single, 2,000 years ago on Israel's top 100 list, a song was sung about sacrificial love, and that's Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a song that was sung by the people of Israel. And it's a song talking about the forthcoming Messiah. Isaiah, being a prophet, speaking on the behalf of God, is talking about what we've talked about all the way from Genesis 3. That God is going to send someone. God is going to write himself into his own story and literally reconcile, like we sung, Literally the universe back to himself. It's a song. And it's a song not just about love, but about a sacrificial love. And so my thesis and my argument for you today is this. When it comes to the payment, sinners receive pardon from sin because Jesus paid the penalty for sin. That is what I believe Isaiah is arguing in this text. Now... What's interesting about this is some theologians and some people say, well, this isn't particularly about Jesus. It's just about maybe a forthcoming Messiah. But what we learn here at Westside is, is because we love the Bible. Oh, that was your part. Okay, I'll back up. We'll do it again. Because we love the Bible. Amen. That we let the Bible interpret the Bible. So apart from verse 2 in Isaiah 53, verse 2, Every verse, now listen to this, this is profound, I learned this this week. Every verse is mentioned either by an apostle or Jesus Christ himself in reference to the person of Jesus. So Jesus himself uses Isaiah 53 and says it's about me and the apostles who are the foundation of the church as Ephesians 4 would teach reference this directly back to Jesus. So now, we are not just dealing with an ethereal concept of salvation. We are talking about Jesus. Jesus is doing this. But what makes this song so particular is, oftentimes for us as Christians, like what's even behind me, you notice that our chapel points to a cross, and below the cross is a baptism. And so all churches and their architect lead to the waters of baptism, old churches, and have a cross somewhere. Why? Because it's so ironic that the symbol of the Christian faith would be a cross. Now, we don't understand the gravity of that because in Jesus' day, the cross was used. It would be the equivalent of, I mean, some of you are wearing cross jewelry today and stuff like that. It would be the equivalent today of you wearing like a gold electric chair around your neck. Like, what in the world? That is the symbol of the Christian faith, is a symbol of of crucifixion and torture. Why? Because it leads to our thesis that sinners, humanity, receive pardon and forgiveness from sin 
and the penalty because Jesus paid for it on the cross. And so what we need is Scripture to change our perspective. A lot of times we view the cross from our view, which is, which is right to some degree. What makes Isaiah the end of 52 and then through the rest of the chapter particular is this. Isaiah 53 is a view of the cross through God's eyes. Literally, through God's eyes. What did this accomplish, not only just for us, but what we're going to learn is that it wasn't primarily first for us. That there's something going on in this passage. So the question is, how does the payment happen? How does the pardon happen? And there's three principles that we see in the text, and the first one is this. The cross was a substitution for sinners. A substitution for sinners. Now, I am drawing my first point and a quarter of this message from one word that is repeated in the text. I want to show you, you need to have your Bible in your hands. And it's why we believe that every word matters in the Bible. There's a phrase that's repeated over and over again. Look in verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And then again, drop down, and if you look in verse 12, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressor. Verse 8, stricken for the transgression of my people. I'm, the first point comes from the word for. Now, you English majors and teachers will understand why. The word for is similar to the word because. What, what is that? That's a clause statement. It joins ideas together. So, he was pierced as an idea, right? But why was he pierced? For our transgressions. It's an idea that Jesus himself carries on into the Gospels. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says these words. I want to show you this. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve... So Jesus had the original drop the mic moment. You got served right there. You just said it. You see it? And to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, in the language, some of you maybe didn't grow up in church, and that's awesome because those of us who grew up in church have a lot more problems than you. Okay, but that's a different sermon. All right? Entirely different sermon. Okay? Now, the Bible wasn't written in English, but in the language that it's written in, you can't remove the word for. It's it's a definite, it's a clause statement. It's there. So Jesus is saying, I have not come so people would worship and serve me right now, but I have come that I may serve people and give my life for, or here's a synonym, instead. Instead. The Apostle Paul says again in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. For. Why is this important? Well, there in Galatians, he says that he saves us from the curse of the law. This concept of substitution is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. And here's why. 
the law, the Ten Commandments, or God's standard, right? So parents, look up here, listen. If you are raising your children to just not break the Ten Commandments, you are raising your children to go to hell. That's not the point. The law was given to reveal to us that we could not keep it. The law is like an x-ray machine. The x-ray machine shows that you have a broken bone. The x-ray machine does not heal your broken bone. So we have the law, which is the standard. We have us, who were below the standard, now enter the clause for the life, for many. And I would argue that this theme of substitutionary sacrifice and sacrificial love That the world and everybody borrows this theme in every great story ever written. So it's the reason why in my house, Andy Grace, being four years old, walks around in wigs and makeup and she is either Moana or she is Elsa or she is Jojo or she is something. But Roman gets to play with her as well. And if Roman is not the enemy in the story, which sometimes he is, okay, right, (laughs) brothers and sisters, right, Roman comes kicking in the room with a ninja sword and a power ranger and does what? Saves Andy Grace. Saving. This idea of being saved through sacrificial love is everywhere. And just to prove it to you, um, in 2008, Susan Collins released her first part of a three-part post-apocalyptic book entitled The Hunger Games. Right? Remember this? How many of you have read The Hunger Games? Just raise your hand, right? Cool. We're not a fundamentalist church. You can raise your hands. Okay, right? right. <laughs> so this book, I mean, big deal. I mean, it sold um, 100. Oh, no, it sold 65 million copies when it was released. But on March 21st, the movie released. Broke all kinds of box office records, 152 million. But there, do you know where I'm going with this? The scene, the famous scene in the movie. So here's the premise. There's the really rich and the really poor. And the really rich are really bored. And so what they do is they make the really poor fight it out once a year in the Hunger Games. And whoever wins in a fight to the death gets to leave the poor district and come to the wealthy district. Well, this is oppression and everything beyond everything. And they have what's called a lottery for each district. Katniss Everdeen, right? She is the lead in this. The book surrounds her. And the beginning of the movie and the beginning of the book, her district has the lottery. And a name is drawn. And it is Katniss's sister whose name is drawn. And the crowd gasps. Her sister's 12 years old. She's going to have to fight to her death. It's going to be horrible. And so literally out of love and out of restraint, one of the most famous scenes in cinematography is Katniss steps forward and says, What? I volunteer. I volunteer in her place. And the crowd gasps. Nobody has ever volunteered to go and fight for the death. Now, it's beautiful and it's moving. But as your pastor, I need to teach you something. That that illustration is lacking. And here's why. As parents or anybody, we need to be teaching our children a worldview. So when you leave and drive home from the theater or you see something like that, that moves us, but it moves us in like a sentimental sort of way. Like, oh, wow, she stepped up and she saved her sister and did all of that stuff. The problem with that is, is that substitution is not like the substitution that the Bible is speaking of. The Apostle Paul would argue this in Romans. 
For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. Katniss Everdeen. The Apostle Paul is making this statement. Sure, somebody would lay their life down for someone that they love. That's, that's not the radical concept. That's not the crazy concept. The crazy concept is perhaps for the good man someone would die, even dare, but God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What is the storyline of the Bible? The story of the gospel is the hero dying for the villain. That's what makes this so controversial. Is that this God is a self-sacrificing God. But He is not dying for you know, good people to become better. Or He's not dying for a certain class of people. He's not laying down His life for something like that. But rather, could you imagine how Batman in the movie would be if Bruce Wayne died for the Joker? No one would watch that. That's horrible. He doesn't deserve that. He's the bad guy. Do you see why the gospel becomes offensive? Because the gospel forces us to look at ourselves. And this is God's love that motivates this. And I had this drop into my spirit in the first service, and I believe that this statement is true. That God's love leads us to look at the worst part of ourselves. But it tells us that we don't have to live there. You see, that's why the substitution is so radical. Because you and I are the transgressors. This is not an ethereal concept in the passage. Isaiah is speaking about the people of God. That it's not for that guy or for that girl or for those people, but for me. And this drops in in the New Testament when the Apostle Paul, it's the only time he ever says it, the only time. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, For it is not I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And this life that I now live, I now live by faith in the Son of God. Here it is, don't miss this. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, when it drops in and you understand that the cross was a substitution for me, and here's how we use the language here at Westside. If you go through our connection class, you learn this. We sum up the gospel like this. Jesus in my place. It's Jesus in my place. So, sinners receive pardon from sin because Jesus, number one, substituted himself. It was voluntary. But it's God's love that motivates that. But this next point and the next verse I've struggled with all week. I've prayed. I tried to look at different translations. I didn't want it to say what it said. But the second thing is this, is that the cross was a satisfaction for God. It wasn't just a substitution for sinners, but it was also a satisfaction for God. Look in verse 10. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
And he has put him to grief. What? It pleased God. And by the way, who's doing the killing? Caesar's not mentioned. Pilate's not mentioned. It pleased, some of your translations say this, it pleased the father to crush the son. Now I have to go where angels fear to tread because there are two ditches on either side of the road. And one ditch is this, is that if we only speak of this and the word that is a very dirty word in 2018 is wrath. It's what we're talking about, wrath. So much so that the Presbyterian Church in, in, in America, the uh, PCUSA, in their hymnals, in the song, In Christ Alone, removed this phrase. And on that cross, when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Do you know why? Because it's troubling. Because it's heavy. But you know what we're going to do here? Grab your Bible. Do you have your Bible? Hold your Bible in your hand. You got a fake Bible on your phone? I'll let that slide. Hold it up. Hold it up. Hold it up. Hold it up above your head. This is what we're going to do with it. We're going to put it here and we're going to work on it. We're not going to remove it, but we're going to work on it. You can lower your Bible. And so here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to build a theological scaffolding that jumps through hoops and does all of this because the other side of the ditch is what's very common now in 2018. So it's either God is a dictator, and as one theologian says, divine child abuse, who crushes his son, or the other side of the ditch is God's unrelenting, wild, crazy love and some other dumb synonym that they put before God's love, right? It's just this, ooh, peace, love, Jesus is the lost member of the Beach Boys, right, blonde hair, blue-eyed Jesus, but I believe in the middle here is literally the core of what we're seeing in the gospel. Now, when it says that it pleased the Father, what this is, it's a satisfaction by propitiation. That's a big word. So is mayonnaise and mocha frappuccino, but you use that every day, okay? We're going to learn a word here, all right? And the Apostle Paul would go on to say this. He uses the same concept. I'm showing you that I'm not isolating this concept, but it is taught through the rest of Scripture. And Paul says these words, whom God, speaking of Jesus, put forward as a propitiation, that means satisfaction, by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Do you know the phrase, God's righteousness, is what sparked the Protestant Reformation? The father of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, hated that phrase, God's righteousness. Because you know what he said that it did? It was seared into his mind. Because it reminded him that God was above us. Did you know the most mentioned attribute of God in the scriptures is not love and it is not grace. It is holiness. And so here's what we have. We have a a dilemma. And man, we could get really deep in this and understand in the heart of God and on the cross that there was almost a conflict within the character of God himself. Because if he is holy and there is sin and he lets that go, then he is no longer holy. But... 
If he is loving and foregoes sin, then he is not truly loving. And it's what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. And all through the New Testament, the phrase is sprinkled. And Jesus came and saved us from the wrath that is to come. But we need to be careful with this. What is motivating this? I'm going to borrow this phrase from one theologian. He says this, God's wrath is God's love in action against sin. Listen, don't miss that love. Love is the motivation. Love is the wind in the sail of the wrath and the judgment of God towards sin. I could use this illustration, but even then it would be lacking. Because when we think wrath, we think of us as parents or someone who's you know, flown off the handle and it's reckless or something like that. But imagine, imagine you, you're married and you've been married for 50 years, right? Besides, you should probably receive a award from the government for that. That's incredible, right? 50 years. And some of you are like, amen. No, just don't say that. Oh, that's bad, right? Imagine you're celebrating your 50th wedding anniversary and you've been dancing, Right? Every your family's there and you've been, you know, I love you, babe. I love you. The 50 years and all of that. You leave, you go get some punch and you come back. And she or he is dancing with someone else. What do you feel in that moment? You see, the opposite of love is not hate, the opposite of love is apathy. It's to not feel anything. And so if you saw that and there was no emotion evoked, I would question your love. But even then it's lacking because we understand the perfect concept of God's love and His holiness. And the story of the Bible is in Genesis 3, God danced with us. And with Adam and Eve, He created us in His image and His likeness. And we chose to dance with someone else. And so in light of that, his love is what motivates us. And I would recommend to you John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ. And here's what he says. Don't miss this. This is huge, and this is the crux on which it all depends. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Do you understand that? God does not love us because Christ died for us. That would mean that at one point, we were unlovable. And listen, for some of you, you came in here today and this is your word. There has never, there has never been a moment where God's active love and grace has ceased from you. God does not love us because Christ died for us, but rather Christ died for us because God loves us. If it is God's wrath and holiness that needed to be satisfied, then it is God's love that did the satisfying. Do you understand the difference in that? That it's not just a benevolent dictator, but rather what we have now is a self-sacrificing God. That God pleased himself by sacrificing himself. 
This stands in contrast to everything else in the world. So what is, if you remove this concept, you remove the very fabric of the Bible. And when you go back and look at the giants of John Knox and Spurgeon and Whitfield and Wesley, there is one problem that humanity has. And it's not who's in the White House, and it's not anything else, and it's not this, and it's not that. Man is at war with God. And we sugarcoat that by statements like, love the sinner, hate the sin. There's a problem with that statement because in the Psalms it says, God hates the wicked. So there's a problem that humanity has. And in order to get the peace of God, we have to have peace with God. And God provides the solution. So what's the story of the Bible? It is God saving us from himself, by himself, and for himself. We cannot change. And listen, I understand it's difficult. And this is a facet of the gospel. But in this text, Isaiah, God is saying rather, through Isaiah's mouth, that this is what had to happen. That primarily, as the scriptures would teach in Ephesians and in Revelation, that before the world was created, there was a bloody contract that was signed. And it was signed between the Father and the Son. And when every gospel records that on Golgotha, when Jesus had railroad spikes in his wrists and in his feet, that darkness covered the whole earth. Why? Because in that moment, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Because Habakkuk says God cannot look upon sin. The psalmist says he cannot be in the presence of sin. And somehow, in some divine mystery that I cannot explain, but I will not explain it away, that the Father turned his back on the Son for that moment. Jesus was forsaken so we could be forgiven. Jesus, why why does Jesus say, my father, my father, why hast thou forsaken me? You know what some theologians say? Some theologians can't understand that, so they explain it away and say in that moment is when Jesus ceased to be God. That was his humanity. But in his divinity, he's understanding that somehow in a relationship of the Trinity, eternal, begotten, that there was a tremor in a moment. So that, so that, for us, that the next point would be that the cross was a solution for life. That the cross was a solution for life. You see, that's why the symbol of Christianity is so provocative. It means death. But for those who are believers, it means life. And look at what it says in these verses. They're very peculiar. It says there in verse 10, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Verse 11, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted for righteous. What is being prophesied here? What's being prophesied, all theologians agree, is the resurrection, is the payment. So if the cross is the payment for the penalty of sin, the resurrection is proof that the check cleared. The grave is empty. God is satisfied. And so let's bridge the application from the text to your life. What does that mean now? That means that God not only loves you, 
in Christ. But he delights in you. See, a lot of you think that, oh, you know, Jesus died, paid my sins and all that stuff, and then we move on. But rather, as Zephaniah 3.17 says, that he now sings over you. That it's not just that he loves you, but he delights in you. That he rejoices in you. I love what Charles Haddon Spurgeon says. It may be that the devil thought the death of Christ was defeat of Christ. If so, how greatly was he mistaken? For when Christ died, he won an eternal victory. He is no longer dead. Jesus left the realm of the dead, never to die again. He died, but could not long be held prisoner of the grave, loosening his grave clothes. He came forth in light and immortality. Centuries have passed since he rose from the dead and to this new life, and he still lives. And his days, we know, will be continued here on earth, and he will stand Oh, yes, my brothers and sisters, he will stand at the end when he will deliver up the kingdom to God the Father. He will still prolong his days. This verse also indicates that Christ's death was the work of bringing God's people out of darkness into light, from nature of grace, from grace to glory. It is called the Father's pleasure because his pleasure is the source of all the saving. And do you know what the problem is? He tells us, look there in the verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before the shearers. And then verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned. Everyone. Finish it. Where we turn to? Our own way. That's the problem. So the idea, follow your heart, is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. That's the problem. Follow your heart to hell. For the heart is desperately wicked and who can understand it? In Genesis 9, God looked at the heart of man and saw that they could only continually do evil. So this is what is provocative about this. And let's just get real provocative in the 11, right? Talk about free will and choice. Let's just do this thing. You ready for this? Will yourself to be 8 feet tall? Will it? Will your kids to obey you? Right, right? Oh, okay, so now our will has just gotten smaller. You see, the concept is not free will that's debatable. It's the concept of desire. For we do not make a choice apart from the desire to make it. And what the scripture is teaching is that we need divine intervention to come into our heart and show us life. This is the only solution. If we are left to ourselves, then the payment is null and void. But God Himself provides the sacrifice. So we receive pardon from sin because Jesus paid the penalty for it. And so, how do we close this in application? How do we bridge this from a deep theological concept to the application of your life? How do you leave here today living differently in light of this passage? The first thing is this. I think because God shows us the real meaning of love, we are now free to love and to be loved. Do you know what that means? 
You see, some of us in the room today think we're very good at loving people, but very poor at recognizing that we are loved by God. And do you know the only way that you can love someone who doesn't deserve it is to first understand that you are the recipient of an undeserving love. You see, it frees you. It frees you for this concept. Look up here. That it's not about you. Your marriage is not about you. Your job is not about you. This church is not about you. Everything is a vehicle to show you by the unmerited, undeserving grace of God that you are now free to love others. The second concept is this. If this was prophesied 600 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, and every apostle says that this is about Jesus, it tells me this. God said He was going to do something, and He did it. And if God did that, then you can trust Him with whatever you're dealing with. You see, in the church we get very Christianese. We trust God with our eternal salvation, but have trouble trusting Him with our current situation. And what He's saying is, this life that I paid for and provided for, if you trusted me with that, you can trust me with anything. But the last concept is this. Because Jesus lives, so can you. So can you. And we can live free. We can live free in light of this to know that God is satisfied because he's provided this himself. So we're going to end a certain way today. In your bulletin, you have Isaiah 53 in a particular translation. We're going to read this out loud together. And here's my hope. My hope is, is when you come to the tables and participate in communion and we sing these next songs, it's not just our sin or a sin, but my sin. And not just my sin, but my life. So stand right where you're at and let us read this out loud together as a prayer and as a confession. Isaiah 53, Westside, lift your voice. He was beaten, he was tortured, but he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered, and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice miscarried, and he was led off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten, bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked and threw him in a grave with a rich man even though he had never hurt a soul or said one word that wasn't true. Still, it's what God had in mind all along, to crush him with pain. The plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin so that he'd see life come from it. Life, life, and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Out of that terrible travail of soul, He'll see that it's worth it and be glad he did it. Through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant will make many righteous ones. As he himself carries the burden of their sins, 
Therefore, I'll reward him extravagantly, the best of everything, the highest honors, because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch, because he embraced the company of the lowest. He looked to on his own shoulders the sin of the many, and he took up the cause of the black sheep. Heavenly Father, this is our prayer. And we pray what the man prayed in the parable with Jesus in Luke 18. God, I am a sinner. Have mercy on us. And we pray this in the name of mercy embodied. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.